Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his piece on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien is going to set out three guiding questions. And when it comes to the question of origins, he's going to say that I'm going to pass lightly over this question. I'm too unlearned to deal with it in any other way. But, and here's the key, it is the least important of the three questions for my purpose and a few remarks will suffice. So what are these three questions? Well, one of them is what is the origin of fairy tales historically in terms of how they emerge and develop into what they are. But the first question, which he thinks is more important is, well, what are fairy stories? So the question of what we could call essence is more important than the question of origins. And then the third question is, what is the use that are made out of fairy stories? And again, Tolkien thinks that that is a more important, more revealing question for us than this one of origins. But He's not going to pass over it in just a paragraph. He's going to say quite a few things. And much of what he's telling us is, you could say, by way of setting something out and then negating it and then drawing some conclusion from that. So the first thing is he thinks that there's a mistaken approach that develops in looking at the question of origins. And he's not saying that it's completely flawed. He's saying, well, there's a certain truth to it. There's a certain value. He actually talks about a perfectly legitimate procedure in itself. And what is that perfectly legitimate procedure in itself? You know, looking at the basic components or the elements of fairy tales and then trying to associate them, figure out, you know, which led to which on that basis. You could call this in some respects, this could be a little bit misleading, a structural approach that looks at the fairy tale as essentially a structure of particular elements. And he gives some examples of this. He tells us there's a lot of elements in fairy tales, such as this detachable heart or swan robes, magic rings, arbitrary prohibitions, wicked stepmothers, and even fairies themselves. And these can be studied without tackling the question of origin. And he says that these studies are, however, scientific, at least in intent. They're the pursuit of folklorists or anthropologists, people using the stories, not as they were meant to be used, but as a quarry from which to dig evidence or information about matters in which they are interested. And he says, yeah, this is legitimate. You know, different sciences or disciplines can do their own thing with this. But the question is, what really is going to count? And he says that to investigators of this sort, Recurring similarities seem specially important. So students of folklore are apt to get off on their own proper track or express themselves in a misleading shorthand, misleading in particular, if it gets out of their monographs into books about literature. So when it moves from their scholarly work into literary criticism, then we've got a problem here. And what's the problem? They are inclined to say any two stories that are built round the same folklore motive or are made up of a generally similar combination of such motives are 
in quotes, the same stories. We read that Beowulf is only a version of Dot and Menneken, that the Black Bull of Norway is Beauty and the Beast, or the same story as Eros and Psyche, that the Norse Master made, or the Gaelic Battle of the Birds and its many congeners and variants is the same story as the Greek tale of Jason and Medea. And, you know, we do see a lot of this with people who want to approach stories, you could say from the top down, and also from the bottom up, just looking at elements, and they miss the middle part, don't they? So what does Tolkien have to say? He says that the problem is that they leave out the coloring, the atmosphere, the unclassifiable individual details of a story, and above all, the general purport that informs with life the undissected bones of the plot that really count. Shakespeare's King Lear is not the same as Leoman's story in his Brute. Or to take the extreme case of Red Riding Hood, it is of merely secondary interest that the retold versions of this story in which the little girl is saved by woodcutters is directly derived from Perrault's story in which she was eaten by the wolf. The really important thing is that the latter version has a happy ending, more or less. And if we do not more the grandmother over much and that Perot's version had not. And that is a very profound difference, he says. So what they're missing out on, what they're ignoring is all the other aspects of the story. And this is where we get people saying silly, silly things like, well, this story over here is the exact same thing as this. They're all the hero's journey, for example, is a great example from our own time. No, they're not all the hero's journey and they're not all the hero's journey, even if they are in the same way. Some of them are crap and some of them are great. And it's not the fact of being a hero's journey that makes a story what it is. So the other thing that he says here in this respect is that I don't deny the fascination of the desire to unravel the in intricately knotted and ramified history of the branches on the tree of Tales. It is closely connected with the study of the tangled skein of language, of which I know some small pieces. You know that Tolkien was himself a professor of languages. And he says that even with regard to language, it seems to me the essential quality and aptitudes of a given language in a living monument is both more important to seize and far more difficult to make explicit than its linear history. By attending to the history, we lose sight of the richness of language. So he says, with regard to fairy stories, I feel it is more interesting and also in its own way, more difficult to consider what they are, what they have become for us. And I love this phrase, what values the long alchemic processes of time have produced in them. And here he's going to give us a very pregnant metaphor that he's going to follow up on a little bit later. In descent's words, I would say we must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been boiled. And so this is where he says, I'm gonna pass over the question of origins. And then he comes to talking about certain debates taking place between philologists and other people who are working on stories. And he says that there's a debate between three different things going on. Independent evolution or invention, meaning that this particular story identified with these elements or markers develops on its own. It is an origin point and we could have independent origin points in different places. The second he says, inheritance from a common ancestry, right? And he is going to call this a little bit later, borrowing in time, 
right? Then the third is diffusion at various times from one or more centers. And he says that this is borrowing in space. Very interesting ways of talking about it. And he says that most of these debates depend on an attempt at oversimplification. The history of fairy stories is probably more complex than the physical history of the human race. All three things, independent invention, inheritance, and diffusion have evidently played their part in producing the intricate web of story. It's now beyond skill, all skill, but that of the elves to unravel it. And then he tells us too, that invention is doubtless the most important one that he says it's also fundamental and not surprisingly the most mysterious to an inventor that is to a story maker. The other two must in the end lead back. And this makes perfect sense, right? Inheritance you inherit from somebody else who has produced, right? So inheritance, he says in this way, we arrive at last only at an ancestral inventor. And then with the other diffusion only refers the problem of origin elsewhere at the center of the supposed diffusion. There is a place where once an inventor lived. And now notice two things here is Tolkien saying that the only thing that counts is the origin point of the story. No, he's not even saying that. He's saying these are in a certain sense leading us off the track because we don't just want to know where did a story ultimately come from. We want to know with the products of inheritance and diffusion, how did the story change? How did it develop? How did it evolve? How did it get better, richer, more interesting, better told? Right? So the mere fact of being able to trace something back to a supposed origin point, which a lot of times is fairly speculative. It's not really answering the problem. So we can shift our perspective. And this is part of what he's trying to get us to do in this section in three main ways. He starts out by talking about how Max Muller's view of mythology is a disease of language. We should abandon that. And he says, mythology is not a disease at all. Though it may like human beings become diseased, you may as well say that thinking is a disease of the mind. It would be more near the truth to say that languages are a disease of mythology, but language cannot be dismissed. The incarnate mind, the tongue and the tail are in our world coeval. The human mind endowed with the powers of generalization and abstraction sees not only green grass, discriminating it and finding it fair to look upon, but sees it that it is green as being grass. So we need to be actually attentive to language. We need to not dismiss it. We need to realize how important and mysterious it is for us. And then we also need to have an attentiveness to what he's going to call fairy. He says, how powerful, how stimulating to the very faculty that produced it was the invention of the adjective. No spell or incantation in fairy is more potent. And that is not surprising. Such incantations might be said to be only another view of adjectives, a part of speech and a mythical grammar. And he goes on and he talks about um, in fantasy, as it is called, new form is made. Fairy begins, man becomes a sub creator. These are three key concepts that he's tying together in just one little phrase. Let me repeat that. 
In such fantasy as it is called, new form is made, fairy begins, man becomes a sub-creator. And here is this line, an essential power of fairy is thus the power of making immediately effective by the will, the visions of fantasy. He goes on and he talks about this as being a type of sub-creation, this aspect of mythology, something different than either representation or symbolic interpretation. And he says, we don't consider this enough. So what is the connection between myth and folktale and fairy story. So he says, you know, maybe people don't pay attention to this because fairy tales are thought to belong to the lower mythology rather than to the higher. There's been much debate concerning the relations of these things, folktale and myth. And he says that we should consider this. At one time, Tolkien says, it was a dominant view that all of these matters were derived from nature myths. The Olympians were personifications of the sun, dawn, night, and so on. And all the stories told about them were originally myths. Allegories would have been a better word of the greater elemental changes, right? So then uh, he says, epic heroic legend, saga, and then localize these stories in real places and humanize them by attributing them to ancestral heroes, mightier than men and yet already men. And finally, these legends dwindling down became folk tales, märchen, fairy stories, nurture tales. And then he says, it's actually the opposite. This is the truth almost upside down. The nearer the so-called nature myth or allegory of the large processes of nature is to its supposed archetype, the less interesting it is. And indeed, the less it is of a myth capable of throwing any illumination whatsoever onto the world. And he goes on and says, personality can only be derived from a person. The gods may derive their color and beauty from the high splendors of nature, but it was man who obtained these for him, abstracted them from sun and moon and cloud, their personality they get direct from him. And he says, let's think about an example, the Norse god, Thor, right? His name is Thunder, of which Thor is the Norse form. It's not difficult to interpret his hammer, uh, Mjolnir, as lightning. Yet Thor has, as far as our late records go, a very marked character or personality, which cannot be found in Thunder or lightning as physical phenomena, right? Construing it as a mere nature myth is not going to work. And he goes on and he says, well, which came first? Nature allegories about personalized thunder in the mountains or stories about an irascible, not very clever red beard farmer of strength beyond common measure, a person very much like Northern farmers, the bender by whom Thor was cheerily beloved to a picture of such man, Thor may be held to have been dwindled or from the God, it may be held to have been enlarged, but I doubt whether either view is right. Not by itself. Not if you insist that one of these must precede the other. It is more reasonable, Tolkien says, to suppose the farmer popped up in the very moment when thunder got a voice and face, that there was a distant growl of thunder in the hills every time a storyteller heard a farmer in a rage. And he says, now Thor, of course, is a member of the higher aristocracy of mythology, one of the rulers of the world. And yet the tale that is told of him in the Elder Edda is certainly a fairy story. So he's saying that we can find fairy tales, right? Within mythology, the realm of fairy, dealing with, of course, not just nature, but the supernatural as well. And he goes on and he says that these things have become entangled, uh, or maybe they were sundered long ago and have since groped slowly through a labyrinth of error, through confusion back to refusion. And what do we see here in this shifting perspective? In a sense, a refusal on Tolkien's part to take the rather speculative assertions by the companion 
comparative mythologists and folklorists and philologists to tell us where the actual origin of these things are and to say what matters more is the kind of story that's being told. And so to that, we need to turn next. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>